0: This is Guy Kawasaki. Welcome to the next Remarkable People podcast. My guest today is Sir Ken Robinson, Professor Emeritus of the University of Warwick and a British author who has excelled as a teacher, researcher, writer, and speaker. Acclaimed by Fast Company as one of the world's elite thinkers on creativity and innovation, he's also a member of the Thinkers 50 list as one of the world's top management thinkers. Robinson's book, The Element, How Finding Your Passion Changes Everything became a New York Times bestseller. It was translated into 23 languages and sold over a million copies. Robinson achieved international acclaim for his 2006 TED Talk, Do Schools Kill Creativity? This has been viewed by 64,333,554 people. He wants you and I to be part of a revolution in education. In a nutshell, he thinks that creativity is as important as literacy and that schools are stifling the creativity of our children. Growing up with polio in working class Liverpool, he knew he'd have to earn a living by using his head, not his hands. In 2003, he attained his greatest honor. He was knighted by Queen Elizabeth II for his services to the arts. Have you ever wondered how one gets knighted? Keep listening and you'll find out. When we began our interview, I tried to explain who I was. He said he knew who I was and proceeded to tell me a great story about the humility of Herb Alpert. I'm Guy Kawasaki, and this is the Remarkable People Podcast. And now, here's Sir Ken Robinson. Do
1: you know Herb Alpert? Herb Alpert? Yeah. Yeah. Do you want a brass? Exactly. Yeah? Yeah. That's how old I am. Well, likewise, yeah. (laughs) So he's become a very good friend of ours. He's 82, 83. He won a Grammy last year. He's a a painter and a sculptor, as well as everything else. I had an email from him. I knew of him because he'd funded a school down in Santa Monica. Uh, So uh, I knew of him, but I'd never met him. I mean, I knew his work. So I got this email completely out of the blue, and it said, uh, Dear Sicken, my name is Herb Alford. I'm a trumpeter. (laughs) (laughs) is that wonderful? It's just wonderful. And he said, "I, I saw your TED Talk last night, and I was very affected by it. You're talking my language. If there's anything I can ever do to support you, I would love to meet... Of course, if you don't have time, I understand, and I send you my very best wishes for you know for all that you're doing. Oh, really, it was so humble. As as uh, he said, of course I'd contact him. It, he said, if you're ever in LA, that's right. It turned out our offices were like four blocks apart, <laughs> but because of that, it took three months to arrange the meeting. And <laughs> <laughs> because he was true, it's like, like you know, it's like with you, it's trying trying to organise an eclipse, you know, all these yeah. <laughs> moving parts. But we eventually got together, and. We've just been firm friends since. You find that often, that people who have achieved great things aren't bumptious about it. They're doing what they think is important and they yeah. often take for granted and, and underplay their own achievements and their own abilities and the blowhards are the people you tend to avoid. I want to start with that 64 million view YouTube. Did you do anything to optimize the virality of it? No, I didn't do anything to personally to promote it. I mean, I had thought of having... Uh, Basement full of small children tapping on the keyboard and, <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> Donald Trump Jr. buying books. <laughs> to... <laughs> exactly right, <yeah. laughs> or, or adapting some form of Morse code system, it just yeah. kept tapping.
0: Yeah.
1: But no, I showed up for the event. I hadn't been to TED before, I'd heard of it. And it was a remarkable event. This is when it was held in Monterey. It's a small private conference. I say small. There were twelve hundred people there, but it was a regular crowd and yeah. they'd been meeting there often. And it was a it was a kind of industry group, yeah, you know, technology entertainment and design. And its reputation preceded it because to be invited to speak was a thing.
0: I've never been invited at the time. Have you not?
1: Well, Ted X's, yeah, but not Ted. Well we should fix that. I'm
0: not I'm not in the major leagues. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, we'll we'll get on that. But, yeah, I was invited to speak. People had heard of the work I'd been doing. I don't quite know how these invitations come about. I think it was partly people I knew. I have a really good friend who's also now our lawyer called Ken Hertz. And he used to go, and he said to me often that you should be at TED. And I think he probably had a word with them and said, you know, they're on the lookout for people who they thought had something interesting to say. And so I think Ken, Ken was the route. But... Yeah, I sat there. It was a fascinating conference. This protocol of the 18-minute talks was interesting. Yes, There's no great mystery to that. I think Ricky Werman, who founded it, decided after experiencing in consultation with the community that if you give everybody an hour, then not everybody can hold a room for an hour. That's the first thing. And and you can and only secondly, get eight a day. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, yeah. And, and, and that if you start having breakout sessions and panels, well, you know, you know, panels are often where conferences go to die. And and, and th- that group wanted to hear everything. So they decided by, I, th- I guess, that process that they want to get more speakers on the main stage. So they gave every 20 minutes. And he policed it. And, you know, you have a minute to get on, a minute to get off. And there you go, you've got 18 minutes. But it became rather mythical, you know, that you had an 18-minute thing. So I showed up. I was very interested in it. And I'd been traveling and I gave some thought to it, obviously, because it was a big, you know, it was an important event. <laughs> that was nice of you. <laughs> well, you know, it's not like I just wandered in. But, but I, I mean, my style always is to try and connect with the room I'm speaking to. And I can't read speeches. I'm not very good at that. I, I don't want to. And so I end up, I realized over time, with a, it, it's essentially it's a set list. of just jot down beforehand in kind of five sections. For any talk, whether it's an hour and a half or <clears throat> you know, or a or twenty-minute one, the, the key things I want to get over, and the kind of rough sequence to it. But after that, it's improv, really. It's playing jazz. I talked to Herb about it, really, and said yeah. it, it's the same thing. Yeah. I mean, there are riffs that you know work, that you've tried before, and you kind of refined a bit, and and stories that you feel are, that might be relevant, and there's an arc uh, to it. But after that, it's kind of free-form. And you didn't rehearse that talk 50 Not. times? or No. But, you know, it's, things, it, it's what I know about. And, uh, you know, I mean, if they'd asked me to go in and, and talk about the genome, I'd probably have to spend a bit of time. <laughs> but, you know, but, you know, you become familiar with certain sorts of ideas. But I always like to push it when I'm giving a talk, anyhow. But I've no idea when I get it really quite how it's going to run or what the yeah, stories are going to yeah. be. I mean, I didn't know the stories I was going to tell when I got up. But no, it was a, it was a speech in that room, and it seemed to go very well, and it was very funny. My, they didn't put the talks online at the time, and some time after the conference, Chris Anderson, who runs TED, contacted me, and said, "We're thinking of putting some of the talks in this year's event on the website, so people can get a feel for what happens at TED, and could, we'd like to put yours on. Would you would you be okay with that?" And I said, "Yeah, right. Yeah, you know, could I see it? Could you send me it? Because I couldn't." accurately remember, you know, how it looked. I said, can you send it to me? So we did, and I showed it to my wife and I. Terry and I have been together for 42 years now, and we've always worked together. She's my kind of mentor in lots of areas. So we sat and watched her. I said, what do you think? And she said, it's all right. (laughs) She said, it's all right. She she said, I wish you'd worn a different shirt. I said, come on. Anyway... (laughs) So it went on, and and you know it it, it didn't. Be, it wasn't an overnight sensation. It it took a year or two to build, but then you know, the flywheel starts to turn, and people recommend it. So yes, it's been a great thing, I've been I'm delighted about it. Okay. Partly because I'm passionate about the ideas, and getting them out there. I, I think that TED's motto of ideas worth spreading was tailor made for me because it's what I do. I hope, and and therefore. It getting out there in the way it did was very important. But it was interesting to tell it off. It's an interesting thing because I have worked in this world for a long time. And I remember speaking, I did an event a few years after that TED Talk and at a university and over lunch some guy said to me, you've been at this a long time. I said, what's that? He said, trying to change education. I said, I have, yeah. He said, what is it, seven years now? <laughs> I said, how do you, how do you mean? <laughs> seven years? He said, you know, since that TED Talk. Well, that's when they start the clock. Yeah, I said yes, but I was alive before that. Yeah, that was, it was for me. It was just, it was a moment, but it turned out to be a seminal moment for me because it got so much attention. Chris would say the same for TED. I think it, it shaped their idea of what a yeah. TED talk could yeah. be. And when they asked people subsequently and have done how they found out about it, TED, an awful lot of people said it was because they came across that talk and wondered what TED was. Wow. So it was a, there was a very interesting synergy, but. To the point, I could have given that talk 10 years before, and probably did in some version somewhere. But it was that confluence of the growth of social media, YouTube, mobile devices, and more and more people going online that, that fanned the flame of that. It wouldn't have been. it's like Uber couldn't have happened without the technolo- technological climate yep, in yep. which it was conceived. So, yeah. I had a great story recently, uh, I love telling it, of a little girl who was uh, in a drawing lesson. She was six and she was at the back drawing and the, the teacher said, this little girl hardly ever paid attention. And in this drawing lesson, she did. And uh, the teacher was fascinated. She went over to and she said, what are you drawing? And the girl said, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the teacher said, but nobody knows what God looks like. And the girl said, they will in a minute. <laughs>
0: Okay. I watched many of your videos, and I want to ask you. Me too. <laughs> how how spooky is that? <laughs> I want to ask you how you find your quotes, because your quotes, you know, the stories yep. and the quotes and the things are just like
1: spot on. Oh, thank you. Um. I read a lot, mm-hmm. uh, not always the entire book. <laughs> uh, well, you know, you, you get a feel for the DNA and the energy of a book quite early on. You know, you kind of think, okay, I got this, and I sort of jump around it a bit. I mean, some books I read, really I sit and 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 uh, live with for a while. I guess I, I read widely, and I I, I just I absorb things, you know, and, and some things stick in my mind the way they do. You, know, you think that's beautifully said. I, I was writing something this morning about dance, and I was remembering, it just it's always stuck with me that there was a, a famous British conductor called Thomas Beecham, Sir Thomas Beecham, very celebrated, and he was asked at one point about the popularity of these prom of the prom concerts that are held in London every at the Albert Hall, and the during of course of his comments, he said, you you have to understand, he said that the English don't understand music. But they love the noise it makes.
0: I mean, I rest my case. You just pulled that quote out of the air.
1: But that's such a beautiful observation, isn't it? True. They love the noise it makes. I think that's great. I tend to absorb vivid comments of that sort. And, and, and you want to credit the people who, who come up with them. Yeah. So I don't know. Um, a lot of what I do is, is about trying to be as clear as I can on the things I'm saying. And if, if I feel somebody else has said it better or more aptly, then I'm, I'm very happy to to enlist them.
0: <laughs> Are you ever struck by perhaps the irony or maybe more negatively the hypocrisy of people listening to your thoughts about education and creativity and you know, anti-standardized testing and, and the tiger moms and all this kind of stuff, and yet many of your audience is sitting there they went to Ivy League. They're trying to get their kids into Ivy League. Their kids are getting tutored in SATs. And they love what you say. But then they go home and you got to get into
1: darkness. You got to get into kindergarten right now. So you ever struck by that irony? or? No, maybe? yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're not the only people I talk to. But you're right. There's a significant proportion of people in any group. That nod away. Left liberal. This, this is absolutely right, yeah. <laughs> it's like, and I and I think it's an exact analogy. It's like with the uh, environmental movement and the, the climate movement that people pay all kinds of lip service to. And they say, you know, this is awful. You know, I'm not going to buy any more plastic bags. That's me finished with that. And then they go home and have a nice sirloin steak. And they and and get to fry a private jet home. <laughs> well, yeah, that's the most egregious example. Yeah. But it is right. Uh, and I'm not overly cynical about that, because it, it, these things are difficult. It is a struggle, particularly when you're asking people, as it were, to change their minds, to change how they think about something. That's the first thing. People find that very difficult, because you grow up with a community of ideas. And it's one of the features of cultures, isn't it? that We mistake our own cultural perspectives for common sense. You know, And it's why other people's cultures strike us as odd, exotic, or nonsensical. And... I remember years ago uh, we were in an event in New Zealand and anyone who's been then you, you would know that, that the ceremonies always begin don't they with uh, the Maori yeah. dance the haka yeah and and in this particular case there's in this theater the uh, it was a beautifully done thing you know but but you can sit there in comprehending of you know, it and thinking a what if you just look at it at face value you think what is this the guy puts a leaf down on the stage and screams at it and then screams as not to go near it and and we're not going to. That's the <laughs> point. You know, we have no intention of going anywhere near it. But it's 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 when you stand outside of a cultural frame of reference what what other people do can seem bizarre, nonsensical, totally irrational. But for them it's deeply invested with a powerful set of meanings. It's like years ago uh, I Helped to set up an academy in Hong Kong for the performing arts, and the first time I went to Hong Kong, we were taken to a Chinese opera. That's very hard work if you're not from from that culture. <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: it just is
0: opera in any culture is hard. Work. Well, <laughs> <but> it,
1: <laughs> well, that's all, that that can also certainly be true. But you know, with Chinese opera, if if you're unused to it, well, firstly, it happens in a stadium. That doesn't happen with opera in the West. I mean, you have big theatres, but you're not in indoor arenas, you're not at the Staples Center, which is the equivalent of Chinese opera, it's a night out. You know, families there, they're getting popcorn, drinking Cokes, waiting for the opera to start. And that's very interesting, it's so deep. The, it's more like British pantomime, or European Commedia dell'arte, I should say. People have stock characters and they specialize in them throughout their career. There are standard stories they tell. It's a bit like the fairy tales of myths. And often the, the companies will be brought together and we'll go on with very little rehearsal because they're there to tell this well-known story using characters which are beloved. Mm-hmm. But then there's the aesthetic of the music, which is dissonant to to a European to a Western ear. You know, and I worked out quite early on at this performance, which was quite long, that if I could get find some way of getting hold of the percussionist, you know. <laughs> and silencing singing it, it would have made the whole evening much more enjoyable because it's that kind of bang, 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 bang anybody moves. So, but the crowd is absolutely laughing. It's exactly like listening to a foreign language where people are communicating easily, comfortably, fluently because it's their language and you listen to it. And if you stand outside of a language you, d- you don't know, it's simply an extraordinarily incomprehensible series of noises. And you think, how can this possibly mean anything? But it does. And so, yes, that, that um, you know, that when you face audiences with ideas which challenge what they've grown up with, what they consider to be common sense, what they believe to be the only way to do things, you can sense you know, they're taking it in at one level. But you're asking them to change their whole worldview so they can entertain the idea but whether they can act on it,
0: mm-hmm.
1: some simply can't. But it, but enough people do, I think, and when enough people do think the time's come or the evidence amounts to something that's substantial or they've heard the message so often that it, it starts to really get through, like this is what we mean, then you start to see a shift happening. So I, I don't give up on that. And I accept the fact that people do find it to to think really fundamentally differently.
0: Was there some formative experience that caused you to become this evangelist for education? Can you look backwards and say, okay, so that was it. That's why I'm where I am?
1: No, not one single thing. It's an accumulation. And I, I feel it's generally, that. It, 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 sometimes there's a straight line. You can point to a crossroads and say, was, that was it. I, I did a book, as you know, called The Element, mm-hmm. how Finding Your Passion Changes Everything. And originally, we were going to call that book Epiphany because I'd spoken to a number of people who had had that moment in their lives. And at the time I did the first TED Talk, and I mentioned the book, and it was at a time when it was being called Epiphany. And we subsequently changed the title. So that talk has done wonders for subsequent books which were called Epiphany. But <laughs> but it didn't have much bearing on <laughs> the yourself. book I was referring to because we changed the title of it. I, I talk in that book about how it, p- people find a calling in their lives, and sometimes, it is like falling in love at first sight. For some people, it's like that. And I, I mentioned quite a few people in the book for whom that was true. Uh, but more often, I guess, I think it is more often, people find that they're falling in love with something. It's like <clears throat> when people uh, suddenly find that they have fallen in love with somebody who was an old friend, you know, and you hear that time time, they've known each other, they grew up at school, went to school together, <clears throat> or something happened to a previous partner, and this is a, somebody they've known for years, and they're, you know, they're chatting, and suddenly they realize they're looking at each other differently. You know, something happened between them, the energy changed. And, and, and I think that's more common, because people take for granted their own interests and their own talents. They think, if I can do that, if I'm interested, presumably anybody could be. But either way, I think that typically, uh, there are lots of influences on people. And there certainly have been in my life. I mean, there are some things looking back I can psychologize about. And one of them, there's no question, has a bearing on it, which when I was a kid, I, I was a, brought up in a large family in Liverpool. And I was surrounded by people who greatly disliked their education and didn't feel they had any benefit from it and couldn't wait to get out of it. And the only reason I got pushed more deeply into it was because I had polio as a kid. And my parents wisely recognized I had to focus on my education because I wasn't going to be able to do manual work which is what the rest of the family was capable of doing and where we came from. So my dad was always very insistent on that and I didn't really want to do it. Uh, this was Liverpool in the 1960s. Beatlemania was happening down the street and my brother was in a rock band. So the last thing I wanted to do was be it was sit at home and and conjugate irregular <laughs> Latin verbs. But there's a whole backstory to that which I told somewhere about how it came to be that I went to the local grammar school and that was because I had certain people come into my life, certain teachers who saw something in me without whom I wouldn't be sitting here now talking to you, absolutely not. They had a massive influence as, as did my family. So, And I found myself in the company as a kid. I went into special ed and so I spent five years in special ed surrounded by people with all kinds of physical disabilities particularly. This was
0: before ADHD and stuff like that. This this is physical special ed.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, it was interesting in Liverpool at the time that they distinguished between uh, the physically handicapped and, as they called them, the mentally handicapped at the time. We weren't very good at euphemisms in the 1960s. So we hadn't quite got the hang of them. (laughs) Or the 1950s, I should say. And there were two separate schools. If you were judged to have a mental... Uh, disability or mental handicap, as they called it, you went in one direction, and if you were if you had a physical handicap, you went in a different direction. Although people always mingle them up. I mean, I found that as good. I still do sometimes. If, you, you see, if people these days, I tend to get into wheelchairs in airports because my family had an intervention with me, uh, and I never want to do it because I spent a lot of time as a child in a wheelchair, and I was. It was a triumph to get out of it. So I didn't want to get back in it any time soon. But a few years back they were just so fed up with me taking my time, getting through airports. I said, For God's sake, get in the wheelchair. So and now of course I got off the plane and think, Where's my wheelchair? I'm all outraged, it was not there, but, <laughs> but 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 I find that if you're in a wheelchair being pushed and you go to the desk, the the check in agent will normally speak to the person pushing the wheelchair, not you. They'll say things like, does he have his boarding pass? That's interesting. They do still. Because you're physically, you have a physical issue, they think you have a mental issue? It's associated with it, that you're somehow dependent. Uh, you're not fully independent as a person. I think that's it. A friend of mine, years ago, he, he had, he was blind, and he had a show on the BBC, it may still be going actually, about attitudes to disability. And it was called, Does He Take Sugar? And it's very yeah. telling because yeah. there is a... So at school, there was always that tendency for people to kind of mix the two things up. But something that struck me at school always was... I mean, I wasn't planning... This wasn't a career move. It was just an observation as a child that that there were kids there with all sorts of handicaps, as we, as we called them then. They had people with polio. That was very popular. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> it was very, it was very <laughs> fashionable at the time. And... The people with cerebral palsy, all sorts of disabilities. But they and I didn't identify themselves. By it was just something that was that you had. Uh, what what you were drawn to with people was you know were they interesting? Were they funny? You know were they good to hang out with? And it was it's, it, certainly it's been a motif in my work that everybody. I haven't found anybody yet in my life. Everybody has special needs somewhere, something, there's something. There may be lots of things. But, but and often for kids who've got physical disabilities, uh, that draws people atten- people's attention, they, and they think that's what they're dealing with, but that may not be what they're dealing with at all. It may just be something else. You know, they have the full palette of emotional and social uh, complexities that, that everybody has. And and people who also don't appear to have a physical difficulty may have a considerable one that you just can't see it. Yeah. You don't know what they're dealing with. Yeah. So. It was a compassionate thing to corral kids off in one direction uh, because they thought these people need special attention, but it created a false barrier, I think. And very often people were misjudged and underestimated because in education, I, think, I mean, it's one of, certainly one of the roots of the way I think about this, it, is that education works on such a narrow view of, of ability that we've created a very large conception of inability or disability. Uh, as a consequence. And part of the view of ability we have is rooted in academic work, which is mainly transacted through speech and writing and mathematics. So if you have a difficulty with any of those, you're judged to be deficient somehow, when these kids often have brilliant minds in other directions. But what's true of them is true of every kid. You know, the kids who don't flourish or have an interest in a particular way of thinking or a particular sort of study, and also because a lot of it is so crushingly boring, are thought to either to be the problem. And and so there are remedial programs to deal with the problems they, they're presenting. And they're not presenting problems, they're just having a problem with it. You know, It's, it's why I tell the story about Gillian Lynn, the dancer, you know, dancer, that she, yeah. she was judged to be a problem. And as that doctor famously said, you know, she's not sick, she's a dancer. So as soon as you broaden out your conception of ability and, and capability and possibility, these things that appear to be problems disappear. And you know, the system creates the problem. And then we pathologize people for being in the system. So to me, it's yeah, it has roots in my own experience. They're not causal roots. They're, I just look back on them and think there's there's been a long history to me thinking about this stuff. Uh, but also I think it's a human rights issue, genuinely. It's it's a matter of giving people their due to live the life that they are capable of having and you know, having the fulfillment in their lives that we all want and, and deserve. Okay. And that's not just an opinion, it's set out in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and in every political tract, including the uh, much ignored constitution of, of these United States.
0: <laughs> that, that would be a whole nother conversation. That's a whole other conversation. <laughs> yes, yes, but,
1: but, yes. But we, uh, you know, I became a citizen here 18 months ago. So I had to take this, the citizenship test. Yes. And that requires reading the Constitution and being able to answer questions on it, which is how you can distinguish naturalized citizens from members of Congress, as it turns out. <laughs> because... <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my God. (laughs) We've actually read it. (laughs) And and we know just how appalling it's being being abused just now. I'll
0: tell you a funny story. So a few days ago for this podcast, I interviewed Leon Panetta. And Leon Panetta is the man. Mm, And he said when he was a freshman congressman, his mentor said there's two things, Leon. You always do what's right for your people. In California, that elected you. And the second thing is you have to be able to look yourself in the mirror every morning. So I said to Leon, does the Senate bathroom have mirrors? <laughs> <laughs> and he started busting up. And then I said, or does the majority and the minority bathroom, is it different? Does one have mirrors? No, yeah, the they're not. <laughs> so
1: I don't know what Mitch McConnell sees, but okay. No? So well, we know the White House has wall-to-wall <laughs> there. It doesn't seem to make any difference. <laughs> Uh you,
0: you briefly touched on a subject that I'm wrestling with how you put two and two together here. So like you, my writing and I think a lot of my development is largely the result of one teacher in high school. Name is Harold Keebles. He taught English and he was the most hard ass English teacher. He would make you write essays He would circle mistakes. If you made a mistake, you had to write the sentence incorrectly, cite the rule that you broke, dangling prep, lack of serial comma, whatever it was, passive voice. Mm -hmm. And then you had to rewrite the sentence. And so there was no negotiation with him. So he was a huge influence on me. At the time, I hated it. 20 years later, I've discovered he was the best teacher I ever had. So now that's how I think of Harold Keebles. And then I look at your body of work, and I'm, you know, I may be paraphrasing this wrong, but your body of work is all about creativity and flexibility and realizing people have their bright spots and whatever. So how do you put two and two together? Hard ass Harold Keebles telling me to put a comma there and don't use the passive voice. And at the same time, you're saying, well, everybody's beautiful, everybody has a talent. Well, doesn't the Harold Keeble's approach stifle the person who doesn't want to write incomplete sentences?
1: Well, I don't know Harold. Yeah, okay. But some of the best teachers I had in school were sticklers, English teachers, mm-hmm. Latin teachers, some of the mathematics teachers. I didn't frankly enjoy maths very much when I was at school. No, there's, there's no conflict between rigor, discipline and creativity. There is I mean, ha- no. How Harold taught, I don't know. That's about style. And there's a lot to be said about pedagogy, about how you do it mm-hmm. and what works best. I mean we had a Latin teacher who was an absolute authoritarian. He used to walk around the classroom. He used to he looked a bit like Mr. Bean. <laughs> don 't all
0: Latin teachers look like history? actually not no,
1: <laughs> no some don 't some look like Batman, <clears throat> but he had he used to stand up and cradle his cheek in his hand as he walked around, and he had a cane more like a baton, and he threatened you with it, but, I mean, but in a pretty lame sort of way,, you know. but we lived in a, at a time and in a world where corporal punishment was still fine, as it is actually in some states in America still. Uh, it shouldn't be, but, but, but it it was just taken for granted, but he, he, but he had a, a style and a way of getting you involved in it by challenging you and demanding that you got it right in, in eventually, because he had a belief that you, you would get it right. But he, he used to feign this authoritarian attitude and, and we all kind of went along with it, but we knew his bark was worse than his bite, but that was his style. So it depends a lot, A, a lot of that is about teaching personality, uh, which is maybe why Harold Keeble had such an impact on you. But in terms of creativity and its relationship discipline, it's, it's profound and necessary. And uh, there are lots of misconceptions around creativity. Well, what, what's profound and necessary? The relationship between discipline and creativity okay. is close and profound. You have to define it first, I mean, creativity there are two key terms in this for me. One is imagination, the other is creativity. The imagination is the capacity we all have, we're born with it as human beings, to bring into mind things that aren't present to our senses, to transcend the, the here and now, to anticipate the future, to reflect on the past, to step outside, to speculate, to ask what if. And it's not a single power, it's an amalgam of, of, of many powers that we have. But the ability to bring to mind things that aren't present is the root of it. Creativity is a step on from that. It's putting your imagination to work. It's applying it in some in some specific way. And I often ask people how creative they think they are. And you know, at conferences, people give themselves low scores for that. <clears throat> and one of the reasons is they think what they've just been asked is how artistic are you. Mm-hmm. But and the arts are certainly. Centres of creative activity, but but you can be creative in anything that involves your intelligence. Mathematicians are among the most creative people I know. You can be a, a creative cook, engineer, business leader, anything. If you consider creativity is the process of having original ideas and have value, it's why people struggle when you give them a new idea because it bends their head into into an odd shape. Now I often talk to business about this. You. you some businesses are very good at generating new products. Apple was famously good at that. But some of the biggest businesses haven't come up with any products like Walmart. They didn't create any products, but they're very good at systems and supply chain management and things of that sort. Uh, there are you know, organizations that are very good at services. They have a, it's like Starbucks. You know, They've created a culture around coffee and, and all sorts of bizarre Versions of coffee as a consequence. And <laughs> to me, bizarre, anyway. So so it's, it's, a, it's a practical process. You can't be creative if you don't do anything. And if you're doing something, you have to be working in a medium of some sort. Now, it could be numbers. It could be an intellectual medium. Uh, it could be sound. It, it could be playing an instrument. But you, know, you can't be a creative musician, to go back to Thomas Beecham, in the end, if you can't control the instrument that you're playing. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to be a virtuoso on the violin or the violin before you can do anything creative. I mean I grew up in Liverpool and I'm very, very, very quick and fond of talking about the Beatles. You know, but the Beatles changed the face of popular culture, those four guys. And when they first got together, they could hardly string three chords together. It didn't stop them getting on. If you look at the arc of their musical development over the course of 10 years, it went from musically fairly rudimentary songs, though very powerful ones, to you know, the White Album and beyond, where they're dealing with complex harmonic forms and multiple, areas, you know, multiple forms of orchestration and instrumentation. And they, they were sponges. They learned from everybody around them. I, I was on a, did a documentary recently uh, with, called In Search of Greatness with Gabe Polsky, it was about uh, people who've achieved enormously distinctive reputations in sport. So they had Pele, uh, Wayne Gretzky, mm-hmm. uh, Jerry Rice, Serena Williams, and me, Guy. <laughs> I mean, who's going to call? The kid with polio? Yeah, who are you going to call, right? <laughs> <clears throat> but I was, I was talking about some of these issues, but, but to listen to them, it's very important. Jerry Rice... Said he, do, he, he doesn't think he'd get selected these days because all the selection procedures are so standardized. He said, but he said, he said, I had a great career, but I wasn't bigger or faster than anybody else. I just read the game differently. Uh, Wayne Gretzky said the same thing. You know, he said, I studied the game. I, I'm not a big guy. I was up against all these big guys, but I figured the game out differently. I had, and they talk about the need for creativity in sport, but you can't be Wayne Gretzky, you can't be Muhammad Ali if you're not in shape. If you can't, there's the baseline. It, yes. That's the baseline, but you get better at doing it. So, and often what brings the best in people is when they. It's what about the element's about it's when they discover their medium. You know Wayne Gretzky is a fantastic hockey player. You know, but nobody's saying, well, that's all very well, but how are you on the on the trombone? We have to modify our opinion of you yes. because you know, frankly, when it comes to the the tuba, he, he's pretty poor. People can excel. Actually, it's what Herb Alpert said. When Herb Alpert was a teenager, he, he was a, a some kind of music audience and he picked a trumpet up off off the table. And he said, my life changed in that moment. He said, I blew into this thing. and I realized, he said, I could speak through the trumpet better than I could speak in language. And so, but he is now a virtuoso. It became so. So there's no... Conflict between the idea of discipline and coming up with original work. In fact, they depend upon each other. As long as you understand the pedagogical principles that underpin it, and that the and that there are different levels of originality. Well, so, so to go back to your teacher, yeah, there are conventions of grammar
0: uh-huh.
1: according to what part of the world you live in. I mean, one of the the great transitions moving from England to America is becoming used to different forms of spelling and. Yeah. Conventions of speech and you know things that you can say and you can't, but also, you know some things are nonsensical if, if you don't get the grammar right. But the other thing is also true is that language does evolve. It's not static. It's really not set in stone. I mean, in, in the sense that it's unchanging. The French tried to make it that way. You know, through the Académie Française, they tried to pin it down and not not let it evolve. But they then sell. They, they still let words in like, the weekend and the laptop and all of that. But it is evolving. There was a wonderful interview years back on the BBC with a, uh, they were interviewing on, the kind of flag, on their flagship news programme, called the Today programme on, on the radio. They were interviewing an American academic. And in particular, the, the, the interviewer was asking in, with some irritation, about why in America people insist on turning nouns into verbs. And he said, how do you mean? He said, well, like to action. Why? You know, that we've got perfectly good verbs, or like to do, you know, to perform, you know, <laughs> to, to bring them out, to action, when did that become a thing? And you can go on with these, you know, there are lots, lots and lots of them. And, and, and the guy defended it, and he said, well, you know, but language does evolve in, in its use. And, I mean, look what happened in in rap and, and and in in patois, you know, and in local accents. If you travel around the UK, and if you're from one part of the world, you, I can guarantee, people could learn English at the, some of the best programmes in America. And you go to Liverpool, you wouldn't know what the hell people are talking about, because it's so mangled. It's like people from from England would have a hard time in Brooklyn. You think what? Are you talking about? So, so he said no. But language is like that. It's a living form, and, and people change it in its use, and and conventions change. So, for example, in America, it's okay to have a capital letter after a semicolon. You'd be marked down in in England for doing that. Is that right? Absolutely. Why would you have a capital letter in the middle of a sentence? It doesn't make any sense. But here, it's fine. It's just a convention. So this guy uh, defended all of that, and and so this interviewer said to him, "Well, do you think? That, can you see any end to it?" And <laughs> And he said, I loved it. He said, no. He said, I, I can't think of a noun that couldn't be verbed. <laughs> and he meant it. <laughs> so there's no conflict. That's what I'm saying. But there are conventions and rules, and, and you can spot it when people just don't know what they're doing. That's different. It's not a free-for-all, uh, I don't think. And, and, and the community figures it out. And, and what if some
0: tiger mom or tiger dad listens to this podcast And says, you see, even Ken Robinson says that you need to study math. You need to study grammar. You need to do
1: that. I don't care if you want to be a dancer. You need to. Oh, I didn't say that. Oh. I didn't say that. But I do think that that, uh, mathematics and numeracy and literacy are vital cultural and social skills. No question about it but they're not the only ones and we shouldn't sacrifice all the other ones to those. And that's my problem with standardized education just now. They've become, uh, we've become obsessed with these particular disciplines, like the STEM disciplines, they're very important. At the end of the TED talk you mentioned, I I said there or somewhere else that dance is as important as mathematics in school. Actually, it was very interesting for me. They did a profile of me on the BBC because I'm a very distinguished person guy. I'm just saying.
0: I'm, I'm here, aren't uh, I? Yeah, I'm just
1: saying. So, <laughs> as, as part of it, they took me back to my old school, the one I mentioned, the special needs school. It's yes. now empty. But I walked around and I remembered all kinds of uh, things that, that happened there. And then we went to the studio. And the interviewer, who is very smart and, and gracious and, and insightful and all sorts of things, but at one point she said to me, you said, didn't you, in one of your talks that dance is as important as mathematics in school. I said, that's right, I did. And she said, you can't be serious. I said, why wouldn't I be serious about that? She said, but it, it's obviously not as important. I said, go on, why not? And she said, well, mathematics is a vital part of being able to function in the world. She said, I mean, how many people will leave school and go on to be dancers? I said, well, but how many people are gonna go on to be mathematicians? That's not the point. <laughs> and, you don't teach mathematics to produce a new generation of mathematicians. You'll produce some who are happy and interested and engaged with it. And you don't—I'm not arguing for dancing schools to create the next generation of dancers. Some will, but most people won't. It'll just become part of their general education. And and the fact is that because of the way our systems have evolved, the way our cultures have evolved, we tend to associate intelligence with a particular type of analytical activity. And so, but the fact is we all live in bodies and as children grow, what they become, who they become has everything to do with how they understand their own embodiment. And I'm not saying it's more important than anything else, but it's as important as everything else. And the evidence always is if you have good dance programs in schools, a lot of the problems that you see in schools, like lack of attention, start to clear up, like tension between genders, start to go. up, violence. I, I mean, I quoted in this talk, I, I gave a whole lecture on it uh, in London, the London School of Contemporary Dance. There are programs of ballroom dancing, which have been used in schools in New York, and Brooklyn, some of the toughest schools in Chicago. And the effect on the school culture, on relationships, on sensibility, on easing the social anxiety that kids have, and also making them feel more holistically engaged in their own Uh, their own growth and development is remarkable. And the consequence of, of seeing a broad view of education isn't theoretical, it's actual. I can take it to schools and show this is how it works. And it's not saying it's more important than maths, it's just as important. But incidentally, there are lots of studies to show that if you have a good arts program in schools, particularly, and including a good dance program, kids do better at maths, as it happens.
0: But, I mean, education is underfunded, and dance and arts are underfunded in the underfunded. Yeah, that's right. I
1: mean, can it get any worse? Uh, No, not really. So it has to get better. But that's the thing. You know, people often assume that we can't afford these things. But we can. Mm I did, published a book a few years ago called Creative Schools, mm-hmm. which is terrific by the way, I'm just saying. You should read this book. <laughs> it's well worth anybody's time. But it was to set out not just the principles but the practice of how this works out. But at the time, uh, when we were doing the research in 2013 it was now, we were looking at the, the, the different economic sectors. when this legislation in America became law, No Child Left Behind. And it's not unique to America. A lot of countries have gone down this standardization route in education. But in America, No Child Left Behind required that schools uh, administered standardized tests, a key point throughout a child's career in those disciplines, of science and maths and, and numeracy. Partly because they keyed in with these international league tables and politicians want to know how America was doing. But they didn't provide... The test, they threw that open to the commercial world. So this has been a bonanza for the publishing companies. They love it. Uh, So in 2013, the best we could make out, we we did the figures. The National Football League was a $9 billion enterprise. The U.S. cinema domestic box office was about 11 point something, 11.2, I think the education testing and support industry in America was a $16 billion business. Really? $16 billion in tests. States spend millions of dollars a year on tests to the companies. Then they spend millions of dollars training people to administer the tests. And then they allocate huge amounts of teacher's time to prepping for the tests and marking the tests and recovering from the tests and they, and they base other funding decisions on the test. They base promotions on the test, why they're called high-stakes tests. And it's all been a catastrophic waste of time. Uh, It's done nothing to raise standards in school. It's done everything to uh, depress morale. It's accelerated teacher turnover. It hasn't remedied the dropout crisis. And uh, America is still pretty much where it was on the international league tables 20 years ago. It's just line the pockets of so the of the testing companies. What would you do differently? Well, can you imagine what you could do differently? Th- these are public tax dollars, by the way. Uh, I, I said this recently to a national meeting of the school boards, can you imagine what you could do to improve education in this country with an extra $16 billion a year to spend on it? If you were to invest that in the selection of teachers, the professional development of teachers, in uh, facilities, in infrastructure, on cultural programs, on links with the community, on uh, parental engagement programs. $16 billion would go a long way, but all this has been just drained away in in the interests uh, of uh, an unsubstantiated belief that testing people until they pass out with anxiety is a good way to improve education. It's insanity. And, And by the way, and there are other countries in the world who don't do that or who are, who are moving away from doing that the example it's always given and it's a good example is finland that this whole standardization mania began in america 40 years ago under the reagan administration with a, a report called a nation at risk which you know, drew proper attention it wasn't it's not that there wasn't a problem there was a problem you know kids weren't doing as well in schools as, as other countries seem to be doing and, and so, but it's one thing to say there's a problem, but then if you misdiagnose it and make the wrong prescription, you don't solve it, you just compound it. So anyway, 40 years ago, this is when it began, 40 years ago, Finland diagnosed a problem, but they went the opposite direction. Their system has no testing in it, no standardized testing. They uh, have a full and rounded curriculum, which includes the arts and dance in most schools. They have vocational routes after high school, They promote collaboration, not competition, and they outperform America on every index. And America could be doing that if if they'd gone in the same direction. But instead, it it made this fatal mistake to standardize everything. In practical terms,
0: is that something that an enlightened president, secretary of education, governor, superintendent of education decides to do,
1: or is it something that parents demand? Is it top-down or bottom-up? It's all the above. The decisions to move in this direction were taken politically by a succession of presidents, and none of them in recent history really has fully understood, I think, the genuine challenge of education. George W. Bush didn't, and No Child Left Behind was a bipartisan piece of legislation. He didn't, sadly the Obama administration didn't get their arms around it in the way they could have done. And this administration certainly isn't getting their arms around it in the way they should. But this is a big deal because it goes from the implications for children as individuals and families and communities, which are considerable. America continues to have an enormous problem of non-graduates from high school. Mm -hmm. I'm not arguing against schools by the way, I'm all for schools but we have to rethink what a school is. But a lot of kids uh, leave school early and don't graduate. And th- there's ample evidence to show that kids do better economically and, and so on in the way things are now if they do complete high school. Um, I say now because the world's changing rapidly, so we've got to change what we do in high school as well. But a lot of kids who who leave school early they may go into the forms of education, a lot don't. And it's not true to say that if you don't complete high school, you end up in jail. That's clearly not true, Uh, not true at all. What is true is a very high proportion of people in the correctional system didn't complete high school. So there is a correlation and it's mainly young men of color who end up there. And one of the reasons for that, well, there are multiple reasons for it, but one of the reasons the correctional system is doing so well out of all this is because it's a commercial enterprise as well. And it costs a lot more to have somebody in prison for a year than it does to keep them in high school and, and educate them properly. So, it's it's an example I think of a culture that's beginning to turn in on itself, and it's a big deal for individuals, but it's also a big deal as countries and globally, because you know we are we've created two massive crises in in the last couple of generations. One is the, the natural environment. You know we're teetering on the edge of an abyss here, and I think I don't know why. People are resisting the idea and not wanting to grapple with it. But also, we have a crisis in, in, in the human world, in, uh, the crisis of culture. And, and that's not a, a cool fantasy, it's simply true. If you look <laughs> at the level of levels of depression, suicide, drug dependency, these are off the charts. The education is not the cause of them all, but it contributes to them. And it's the old thing, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. And there's a lot education could do to remedy these things. The reason I'm saying my life's not a straight line any more than yours was, I mean, if you look at social media, when I gave that talk in 2010, uh, 2006, I'm sorry, uh, the smartphone wasn't available. It didn't come out till 2007. And the app, the, the tablet didn't come out until 2010. And now people are behaving as if, as if civilization is impossible without them. But look 10 years out from here, when AI and machine learning really starts to kick in. you know These are transformative, revolutionary devices. But nobody along the way anticipated social media in the way it's grown. I mean, Twitter, really? Nobody was talking about that in 2006. Uh, Facebook was a kind of glint in Mark Zuckerberg's eye. And now, you know, it's fermented the Arab Spring, you know. And so all these things ricochet and, and have a cumulative and largely unpredictable effect. And education's our only buttress against that to help people not just navigate their own lives, but to anticipate, to collaborate, and to... As a species, we have to think very differently. So I think you know we're playing for big stakes yes. here with education. Let me offer a theory. So if you look
0: at the job postings of many companies, companies that you would want your kids to work for, when you come down to the job posting and there's the educational requirements, it's always BS, MS, PhD. And it seems to me that parents see that and then they tell their kids, you've got to do STEM or you won't get a job because Microsoft doesn't have a thing that says dance required. It has BS, computer science. So that until companies realize that innovation and creativity happens from people without these kind of strict disciplines, parents are always gonna force their kids into those curriculums.
1: Well, it's interesting. A chap called Vivek Wadwa mm-hmm. did a survey a few years back on the educational qualifications of leaders in Silicon Valley. You'd have to check it, but from, from memory, over two thirds of them had degrees in the humanities. Yes. It's not a straight line. And, and so I, I'm not arguing against people doing college degrees or getting deep into discipline and becoming expert at it at all, but it's not the only route to success. And for most people, it's not a straight line anyhow. I mean, look at the numbers of lawyers who get churned out of the American university system. Uh, it's no wonder we're in such a tangle because all these people have to do something. And what what they mainly <laughs> seem to spend their time doing is inventing more legal snags that they can help to unravel and charge for it. But an awful lot of them don't end up in the law at all. They go in all kinds of odd directions. I know people who did dance at school who've gone in all, you know, they're in senior management positions. And they, I mean, Sergey Brin and Larry Page went to Montessori schools. You know, and, and they credit their success with the fact that they had this opportunity to develop at, at an early age in a way that has stood them in such good stead since. So that that's what I mean about breaking the spell here for parents to think that the, the only way we can do it is the way it's currently done. There's a film called War Horse. I don't know if you ever saw it. It's, there was, it was a stage play as well, but it's about the cavalry in the First World War. A very good friend of mine, David Putnam, Lord Putnam as he now is, uh, was a film director. He did Chariots of Fire, The Mission. Um, a really very strong record in, with Hollywood movies. But he went to focus on education. But it, I was talking to him recently. He does a course now on filmmaking. There's a scene in War Horse. He shows a clip of it where the cavalry are charging towards the enemy positions mm-hmm. and they're hidden kind of in some bushes. And they, the enemy pull back the disguises they've been wearing and they're there with machine guns and they just slaughter the horses. And it's a very graphic illustration of two cultures colliding, technologies colliding. There was a time when the horse was the best technology we had, but then you meet this thing and there's a sense in which that is happening in the culture, which is his point, that we're still educating people for a world that's disappearing. And, and these new technologies are going to scythe down a lot of these ideas. Uh, and, and so giving kids a broadly based education during the course of which they can discover the things they're particularly good at, but also doing it with an understanding that a lot of the jobs and occupations that we've become used to in the past may not exist in the current form in future. It's just pragmatic common sense. And I say this a lot. I did a book for parents called You, Your Child in School, and saying to them that you have to look at your child. And a lot of the parents know their kids aren't happy, but you're quite right to say that, that one of the impediments to to big change in education is the current set of parental expectations. I get that. They do. But we're in the middle of a paradigm shift. And a paradigm shift, it's a word that's overused, but you see it throughout history. That when you see a big shift in the way things work, like from the farming community to the industrial revolution, from the industrial to the information economy, people cling on to, a lot of people cling on to the old model. In fact, they double down on it, because it's what they know. And they think, well, it worked for my parents, and and they think they're doing the right thing. So part of this evangelizing, as you as you described it, which isn't wrong, is as well to say to parents, are you sure you're doing the right thing for your kids here? We all want the same thing. We want kids to live happy, fulfilled, productive lives. We want them to become economically independent. God knows we do. We we want them to find work that's interesting and fulfilling. But what is that then? What type of education do we need for the world we now live in? In preparation for this last part of the discussion, I
0: thought I would be doing something very clever, and I would go to the Apple job listings and prove to you that even Apple, known for its creativity and innovation, mm-hmm. has dumbass job and education <laughs> requirements. Okay? So I want to read you something. Right, yeah. Apple is seeking a conceptual director to work in a team responsible for developing global multi platform marketing campaigns for Apple services, which includes Apple Music, Arcade, News, iCloud, Apple Care, and more. So, okay? Right. Mm-hmm and more about the person. You know how to tell stories on any platform that drives engagement. You have a pulse on new and creative trends in digital marketing and creative sensibility that extends across content genres. You excel at building cross-functional relationships in fast-paced organizations. This is gonna be just great, because when I come down to the education requirements, it's gonna say Masters of Fine Arts, or whatever, Computer Science. Okay, so you ready? The educational requirements on the Apple website for the position I just read is bachelor degree or equivalent work experience preferred. Mm-hmm. That blew my mind because mm-hmm. I was fully expecting some kind of s- typical mm-hmm. Bachelor of Art, final, you know, whatever, right? Some kind of, it's so flexible. So maybe that's why Apple's so creative because it's permeated even the job listing. So you don't even need a bachelor or equivalent work experience. It's just preferred, not required.
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: I mean, is that an enlightened, Your, your dance instructor, your dance student would qualify.
1: Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Which is a beautiful thing. And I think Google's done that, and a number of other firms as well have said that we we don't stick rigidly anymore to the idea that you have to have a college degree. None of this is an argument against having a college degree, but it's a kind of article of faith. It's like a sacrament, you know, it has been for a long time, that we need a degree. Yeah. Why? Particularly when you see the experience a lot of people have in universities these days where they, it's a kind of, it's like a holding camp, you know, to to keep you away from the job market for a bit longer. And they're leaving with huge amounts of debt. The system's not working. It's true in other Asian countries as well. It's not just in America. But no, I think that's good as you read it. Yeah, I mean, that. what it what, what it says effectively is that we're prepared to look at all candidates and to judge them on their merits and on their experience. What a concept. Yeah, yeah, what a concept. It, it's like, I was talking to somebody recently who spent her life in... Books and devoted to books and literature. And she was looking at a job as a librarian. I forget which state this was in now. I was, I was on the road. Uh, and she's in her 40s. But she wasn't allowed to apply for it because she didn't... Have a degree in library sciences? No, she didn't graduate high school maths. And she said, but it's got nothing to do with... I mean, she's she's lived her life in books. It's that fixed mindset, you know, where... Yeah, but you don't have that, so you can't do that. And so loosing that up, it doesn't mean it's a free-for-all because the people who are making this appointment will look at people's resumes, they'll look at what's involved. And I'm not saying there are commanding there are commanding problems here, the numbers of people on Earth just now, the way the job market's shifting. But we're much more likely to engage with these things if we think differently. It's exactly parallel, I think, to the, the climate movement. You know, the, the system creates the problem. You know, here we in, in the climate, in, in the environment, we know that intensive industrial farming, which essentially sterilizes the environment so that it eventually it decays and erodes, is, uh, it's a suicide note. And the way you, you start to get around it is to recognize that nature is a living entity and if you create conditions for growth, if you go back to the way we used to think about these things, it will begin to revive itself. And it's a key thing for me about innovation is that innovation isn't always about doing something brand new. Sometimes it's doing things that we forgot worked, you know. (laughs)
0: Okay.
1: Uh, Could could you
0: just, in broad terms, describe the education system that we should be aspiring to?
1: Okay. How long have we got? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it starts, for me, with the individual. In fact, I'm currently writing uh, a, a kind of manifesto for all of this at, at the urging of my literary agent. <laughs> I may never forgive him, but <laughs> I can't remember, somebody listening to this might remember, I, I could have checked it, or oh, you may remember, but somebody once said they were writing a letter and they, they began it, it's a well-known author, uh, but the big, it was quite a long letter, and it began by saying, "I'm writing a long letter because I don't have time to write a short one." They attribute that to Benjamin Franklin. Yeah, it's Franklin. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, always, I, I can never tell if it's Franklin or Churchill. It's always one of them. <laughs> Those are only two smart men ever. But yeah. <laughs> but but you know that it's producing something condensed is is trickier. So that's partly what I'm trying to do just now. But it has to begin. With a child, it's like if you're looking at if you're reinventing agriculture, you have to start looking at, at the conditions and how organisms behave and how they behave in different conditions. So we have a grandchild now, uh, my wife and I, and by you know a remarkable coincidence, it turns out she's the most beautiful, gifted child who was ever born. So <laughs> what
0: are the odds of that? <laughs> yeah, what are the odds, guy? What are the odds?
1: You know, we're feeling pretty, pretty yeah. pleased about that, you know, that, that and it you're should, making her study
0: math, yeah, right? <laughs> that
1: it should be we, you know, <laughs> who have been graced with this, this golden child, but she is great. <laughs> but the good thing about having grandchildren, we realize, and we've told it for years, as distinct from having your own kids, is you have more time to enjoy, <laughs> to enjoy them. <laughs> and give them back. And, and give them back, them yeah. back yeah, yeah, where you're not being harassed uh, with, with anxiety and sleep deprivation. So you get to enjoy them differently, but uh, but it's just a function of getting older too. But a couple of things strike you about about babies like this. You know, she's 21 months now, and it's the right place to start. Children are born with endless possibilities. And again, that that's not a slogan. I, I don't mean it that way, but they are. And language is always a very good example of that. Most kids learn the language they're exposed to, but I meet kids... It may be true of you, I don't know, who speak three or four languages effortlessly. Not because they're gifted linguistically, they might be, but it's not because of that. It's because they grew up in in cultures where they, they yeah. just took it in through their skin. And the fact is we could all be multilingual if we were exposed to them in that way. It's effortless. Kids learn to speak, not because we teach them how to do it, you can't. They learn to speak because they want to and they can. And if they are exposed, they'll learn all of them. So we're, we're, this is just one example. What's true of language is true of a multiplicity of other talents and abilities, from music to science to drama to dance. I mean, if you look at people who've excelled in different areas, there's normally some point of exposure in their life or some influence. And then there's that little spark, you know, that goes when the, Paul McCartney. I may, I may have mentioned the Beatles guy, I don't know. But Paul McCartney was on Stephen Colbert in The Late Show a while ago. Uh, it was just great. Little thing. Stephen Kobe said, you know, how how do you write all those songs? You know, how do you get to, how'd you get to write Beatles songs?" And and he did a whole thing about when he grew up in Liverpool. Uh, he was surrounded by music. His dad was played the piano. The family parties, sing-alongs. He was just exposed to it. all the old show songs, you know, the great Oscar Hammerstein, and you know all all the great musical songs. And people would sing them as a big community thing. So my dad played the piano. Then when he couldn't play the piano. I started playing the piano he said so I had a lot to draw from as all this stuff came said I had a lot of things to draw from musically and he said plus I'm a genius <laughs> so, <laughs> I thought it was great I was like yeah yeah plus you're a genius
0: so <laughs> but, <laughs> you are the man of quotes man you should just you should just edit a book of quotes and why bother writing why bother dear you, you got to know what to steal that's why, a skill why,
1: yeah, why make it up man yeah. <laughs> But, but what I mean is, so there's that balance between nature and nurture. You know, we're all born, you know, and there was a whole debate for years, you know, about were children born as blank slates and, you know, was it all environment? And I think whoever thought this up didn't have kids. This is just such patent BS, you know, because anyone who's got children or lived anywhere near a child knows they come fully loaded. When you're a parent, you just have to wait and see who this is that's, that's landed in your midst. <laughs> like, who are you? And they'll tell you who they are. Um, so we're all part of the, the genetic inheritance from our families, from our ancestors, and you know we're all commingled and we, we come f- fully loaded. What becomes of those talents has everything to do with our experiences then, with, you know, with the, what we're exposed to, with the constraints that are placed on us, with the way culture infiltrates the way we think. So you have to start with that. The children have fantastic capacities and they grow and flourish in certain conditions. It's what And this isn't new. You know, Freeble, who developed the concept of the kindergarten, Montessori, Krishnamurti, the great pioneers and voices for a humanistic form of education uh, have all recognized that. And it's why early years education has to be one in which children are allowed to socialize, to move physically, to play, but with certain structures in place so that we can guide them in, in particular ways. So, my ideal education would begin with being clear what young children need to flourish. They need to they need to be physically active. They need to be able to socialise. they Need to learn from each other because learning is a social process. It's why we all speak similar language. We don't normally there aren't seven and a half billion languages on earth with nobody understand what the hell we're all talking about. I mean, there was we speak the same language and still don't know what we're all talking about. But but at least you no, know, <laughs> we end up with accents not because we're peculiar but because we're exposed to it. And then as the children progress, as they get older, there are elements of education. One of them is the curriculum. Another is teaching. A third is the culture of the school. And 4th fourth, a fourth one is its place in the broader community. I want to invent schools because we've come to think of schools as particular places. But if we go back to the beginning, a school is a community of learners. That's it. A, a place where people come to learn with and from each other. And children learn as much from each other as they do from the teacher. They may not learn what the teacher wants them to learn, but they, they're learning all the time. They're working, what, working this out, you know, what's okay, what isn't okay. So, this, so throughout education, my ideal system would have a very broad curriculum that would include the arts, the humanities, sciences, mathematics, physical education, languages. It would include a lot of outdoor activities, uh, connection as far as possible with nature, if you 're not in a, a rural setting as most of us aren 't, there are still ways of bringing nature into schools because we learn everything from that. I would have a very flexible schedule uh, because at the moment the schedule drives the learning yeah, and you, we don 't do it outside schools, I and mean, we have a rough timetable we 've got one now, but you know but outside schools we wouldn 't begin to think. We'll do this for 40 minutes, then we'll just do something else for another 40 minutes. We'll go to another room and do that. If you did that in business, you'd be broke in a week. So you want a flexible schedule. I would be very flexible about age groups. Kids learn a lot from each other. Uh, the only place we segregate them by age is school. And that creates a problem all on its own because you know c- kids move at different rates uh, in different disciplines. A kid may be well ahead of everybody else in a particular discipline, not so much another one. So having cross-generational education is very important. And I'd have a, a kind of a, an agreed broad base of disciplines in, in the in the early years. But then that allow kids to specialize as they go through into areas that they find more interesting. I'd want schools, and these aren't theoretical, where kids have a big say in what goes on. There's a whole movement in democratic schools where children... Learn the principles of democracy by living them in the the way the school is organized and run. Kids can be very astute and responsible from a very early age if you give them the right climate. There's a great organization called AERO, the Alternative Education Resource Organization. The guy runs that, Jerry Mintz, has spent his life working in democratic education. A good friend of mine in Israel, Yaakov Hecht, has uh, been one of the leaders in democratic education and education cities. So So they have to be democratic if we want to preserve our democracies, if we do. And also, they should be networked. So they're not seen as isolated facilities, but hubs of learning. So other people can go there as well, subject to the ordinary rules of safety. And there would be multiple pathways out of school, to, to apprenticeships, to college if you choose to go to it, thinking of college more broadly. But every child beyond a certain age would have a personal learning plan. There's a great network at schools called Big Picture Learning, where every kid has, they sit down with their teachers, their parents, and others, and they work out, these are the things I want to do over the course of the next few years. So it'd be very personalized, but also customized to the area. There's no reason why a school in Kentucky should be just like a school in Juneau, you know, up in in the foul North of America. There's, there's no reason for that. And there should be some things they teach in common, but it should take account of local culture and circumstance. So there's no one way to do a school, but there are principles on which schools should be based and operate. But none of that works if we don't have great teachers and great school principals. None of that works. That's all a theory unless we've got great teachers. And all the great education systems know that. They select people carefully to be teachers. They select people even more carefully to be school leaders. And they don't, as sadly happens in America, disparage the profession and underpay them. Some of that $16 billion of wasted public money should go into respecting, remunerating, and training, and developing a much better teaching force. We should take
0: We should take investment banking and teaching in reverse yeah. compensation.
1: Well, that, that would okay. help, wouldn't it? You know? It's one of the most important professions that we have. And it's one of the least respected uh, here in America. It's not true everywhere. It's true in a lot of places. It's not true everywhere there are some countries which have a much more enlightened approach to it. Uh, and then we need a broad framework for that, for accountability. But we should let people do their job. And we should, if we train our teachers properly, if we train our head teachers properly, then you know, they need a degree of autonomy to get on and do what they do. And I always make a distinction. Oh, I don't always. I mean, I've made it for a while, as it turns out. I occasionally make a distinction. Okay? <laughs> I think I did one of the TED Talks between fast food and Michelin-starred restaurants. You know, fast food systems work by standardisation. Yeah. So, whichever of your favourite fast food outlets you go to, wherever it is in America, you know exactly what you're going to get. It's all absolutely guaranteed. It's normally horrible, but it's guaranteed. Yeah. <laughs> and and it, I mean, it's got kind of an immediate satisfaction. But you go to a, a restaurant with a well qualified chef and well trained staff; they're all great and they're all different. And and I think it's it's a pretty good analogy for that. Yeah. So. It's about principles. It's not prescribing how it's done, but you want people to be respectful of the professionals they are in doing it. And again, this isn't theoretical. There are lots of examples of these schools around the world. In fact, we're about to launch a new platform called Boundless. Uh, myself, Ted Dinsmith, Andrew Mangini and Mangino, and the CEO we've just appointed called uh, Emily Leetab. And it, this is uh, a global platform to empower, inspire, and facilitate grassroots change in education. And part of it is to bring to the surface examples of great schools around the world so people can be in touch and collaborate.
0: I, I think the the biggest barrier you'll face for this in America is that many people believe that the purpose of education is to prepare you to get a great job. Mm-hmm. And what you just described seems like the antithesis to qualifying for a Jobless
1: <laughs> no it's not it's it, it, it's generally not but but the job market is constantly changing and evolving, and you know it's it seems pretty likely nothing certain, but it seems likely on current trends that a lot of the jobs that we've associated with human beings uh, and, and a thought hitherto that can only be done by people are about to be done better by some forms of machine intelligence. Yeah. And, and that's not just in uh, checkouts, at, as you know, in, in uh, supermarkets, it's in medicine, banking, accountancy, even in therapeutic settings, where they, you know, there's a lot of evidence that often these, if, if they're properly programmed. But even so, machine intelligence, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a misnomer, I think, because these machines aren't intelligent. Not like you and me. I mean, who is intelligent like you and me, Guy? It's true. What's the odds of two (laughs) of us being in the same room at the
0: same time? Honestly,
1: and if light were to strike here now, (laughs) God knows what life form would evolve. (laughs) But it's true, isn't it? They're not not intelligent in that sense. They're very smart algorithms. um, But they're not intelligent in the sense that human beings are. You know, with all all of our faculties, senses, embodiments, and sensitivity. And and creativity. That's right. So... But, but so, no, I'm not. I'm, this isn't a, a, a creed for unemployment, no. But it's to say that if, if, if people are to find fulfilling work, we have to keep reinventing jobs, you know, creating great companies, great organizations. I mean, it's interesting, like Uber, for all its problems and troubles, it was, wasn't conceivable 10 years ago. It is now, it's out there. And, and it, it, not only, it was not only made possible by the technology because there had to be an environment for that to work uh, technologically but it also revealed this global workforce of casual drivers i mean we didn't know they were there in 2006 but they were they're all queued up to get involved in it and and people commonly make mistakes like this like that it, when the when the telephone network started to evolve in the 19th century famously people were saying i mean you know the, the way things are going there's going to be a telephone in every town you know I, I, I remember when the mobile phone, the phone came out. I was, I was taken aback by it, you know, when you know, there's a time when businesses had telephone numbers, houses, but why would a person, really, I, was, I mean, I'm old enough to thought, what the hell? Why would a person want a telephone number? What do you mean you can have your own phone? What, what for? So, so it, all the things that we you know, that we just take for granted now, we know all this, you know. You know, I mean, we're just saying it you know, to comfort each other, you know. But, but these things were inconceivable. My dad was born in 1914. He died in 1977. If he came back now, and wandered about, you know, or the Wright brothers were to come back now, and they you know, we sitting there complaining because the plane's ten minutes late. What? No, what? So it's 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 not a stretch to think that ten years from now, fifteen years from now, most of what we take for granted, not all, but a great deal no. of it. Will be different. So, this isn't irresponsible, it's the opposite. Yeah. I would make the case that if
0: Steve Jobs came back now, he would be astounded. And he didn't die that long ago, and he was way ahead of his time. Yeah, I think Um. he'd be appalled as well. Well, yes, yes. Uh, Two more questions, okay? First, how does one become a knight? Corruption. (laughs) You know, <laughs> ah, like the, hidden cameras did the you know, queen call you up it and say, eventually. say ken what are you doing today i'd like you to you know take a take a knee before me is it like getting the macarthur award winner they just call you up the nobel prize hi ah, this is the queen you've been chosen.
1: you've been chosen <laughs> well it, it's not unlike that truthfully but uh the, no if, seriously there's a whole process of nominations Okay. You can't nominate yourself. That rules it out. <laughs> okay. But in, in the UK, knighthood's it's a part of the broader honours system. It's same in America, you know, where they... What, what?
0: Same in America? Well, you know, we
1: don't have the Presidential Medal of Honour here. For Rush Limbaugh? Yeah, just for Limbaugh, yeah. People who've really, <laughs> Rush
0: Limbaugh, yeah. Rush Limbaugh and Rosa Parks, those are two names. They're,
1: they're the two people. You know, yeah. You know, the people who've really brought values in every way <laughs> of life and have offered a vision of the future that we can all buy into. <laughs> Yeah. But there are there are those there are civil and military medals and awards and honors that are given here in America. In in Britain, it's it's called the honor system and the there are a whole network of civil and military awards that are given, which include knighthoods, which are there's a particular category of knighthood called Knight Bachelor, which is a personal award by the Queen. Okay. And so so it's the oldest form of knighthood. It dates back to the Middle Ages where the sovereign would knight somebody for valour on the field of battle. Okay. And they would get the title sir and often lands that go with it. Uh, we seem to have dropped the lands bit at the moment, which is a bit, a bit irritating. But the <laughs> so, yeah, so there's a process of nomination for honours. They go to a government group, organisation. It, it's housed in something called the Central Chancery for Knighthoods. And they sift through these awards a bit like the academy. You know, they go through, and uh, it's it's not a popular vote. I mean, it's a group of people, and they go through it all. They take up references, uh, so the nomination forms can be submitted by anybody on your behalf. And the more people who think so, the better. And uh, they say, you know, we think this person's done something that's egregiously important for the country, and we'd like to nominate them for an honour. And then they pr- provide evidence and references. Did you know it was coming? Is it a sp- no? No, no, That's not secretary. I was asked by the person who put it together, if I would mind being nominated. But that was several years before anything happened. So I, I said, because I was doing quite a lot of stuff at the time at a national level in the UK, and I'd been involved in the peace process in Northern Ireland and stuff like that. And I, I said, well, if you think so. They didn't say, would you like a knighthood? They said, we'd like to nominate you for an honour. How would you feel about uh, that? Uh, and I said, okay. And then, so that goes together, and then there's a process where it's evaluated. People take references see if it's true, and I don't think they tell you, you know, but they they they, they figure out, make sure that you're not doing anything appalling, <clears throat> and then, if all that checks out, there's apparently a formal recommendation goes to the prime minister, and if it gets the prime minister's approval, it's presented to the queen for her decision, and they say, you know, ma'am, your Majesty, the collective view is this person merits this, and does she ever say no? We don't know that. Oh, oh, oh. okay. And we don't know that. But sometimes people refuse them when they're offered them. Really? It's pretty unusual. Oh. And so what happens, to answer your question, is that when all that has happened, yeah, the you're contacted either by letter or by phone yeah. by uh, a relevant person to t- test you out on it. So in my case, I was living in Los Angeles, so I had a call from the British Consul General. Yeah. Who was a friend of mine at the time? Who said he had some exciting news? I thought it was he was being posted to Barcelona, or something. <laughs> and and he said that uh, he said I've got a very interesting, uh, some exciting news. I said, what is it? And and then his voice changed. He went into a kind of odd mode, and he said, I am informed by Buckingham Palace that Her Majesty the Queen is minded to appoint you as a Knight Bachelor, <laughs> and she would like to know if you would accept. <laughs> I said, what are you talking about, Peter? <laughs> <laughs> Are you all right? <laughs> but the language is important. Uh, you know, basically, you're saying you know, decoded. It, you know, the Queen is is willing to offer you a knighthood but wants to know if you'd accept it if she were to do it, and and that's important because she doesn't want to give it to you or to yes, and you say no, I'm good, thanks. You know, I'm okay for Uniteds right now. So because because people may, for reasons of conscience or political reasons, just decline it, and some people have in the past. So they want to avoid that kind of uh, um, difficulty. But I was absolutely inclined to do it. I was thrilled. And I said, <laughs> of course, yeah. And because it, you know, it was an, it was a genuine honor for me because it represented a recognition of the work I had been celebrating, not work I felt I had done so much as the work I'd been promoting that other people yeah. were doing. And it was important for the family, you know, that my family were thrilled. I mean, I come from a... Large working class family in Liverpool. You know, my parents were born in 1914 and 1919 respectively. They went through two world wars. Well, and my dad did. You know, I mean, he lived through it. He didn't fight in It didn't fight in the first one. For that generation, especially, and and also, you know, we 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 got through some hard times as a family. Yeah, you know, I, I had. I'm not making a big deal about what happened to me. But when I was nine, my dad, who'd been in manual work most of his life, had an industrial accident and broke his neck. So he was. A quadriplegic for the rest of his life,
0: oh.
1: and you know, and money was hard to come by, and so, uh, and I know, and I have an extended family. My mum was one of seven; they had lots of kids. So w- when we gathered, it was like a meeting of the clans, you know. So, and my family is very close knit. I mean, the central core was very close knit, and they're all very, very funny, and and they all we all we've been very close, and so to me, it was it was a kind of an honour for the family as well as me, because whatever I. I've done came out of the spot my family gave me, and
0: and does life suddenly change? I mean, you can just walk into Nobu and not need a reservation.
1: Pretty much, you know. (laughs) I mean, people—you enter rooms, people drop their knees almost instantly. (laughs) Stuff like that, (laughs) you know. I mean, the crown gets to be a bit of a nuisance after a while. (laughs) Suffrages has a separate,
0: like, (laughs) (laughs) corner for you.
1: (laughs) You know, it's all very intangible, honestly. Yeah. uh, I mean, I, I think it's a title that people respect and and take seriously, which is great. Do you ever get together with all the other knights and there is actually something called the The World Knight Forum? No, it's the oh god, the that formal title's gone out of my head. But there's <laughs> it's uh, it's an organization of people who've got this form of knighthood, the Knights Bachelor. And it's a so- society of knight's It's a bachelor. bachelor Party. Yes, a Bachelor <laughs> b- Bachelor Party, yeah. And so it's the same form of knighthood that Paul McCartney. John Ive? Johnny Ive has a different form of knighthood. Oh. There, are, there are three or four different versions of it, uh, according to the... Uh, but, you know, people like... Well, a lot, you know. I mean, Elton John, all the people you recognize. So, yeah, it, it's... Uh, truthfully, I, I'm, not, I'm not being quirky in saying it. I, I don't... It's not like I insist on the title at all. But... Uh, but people do use it quite a bit, and it's become associated with me now, in a way. And all I ever say to people is, if we're if we're using titles, that's mine. But I answered a Ken and everything else. I used to be a professor and, and doctor, so now it's that. It's a long time since I was a Mister, but I don't mind. I mean, I, I get checked hotels and all kind of where I've been checked in as Mister Sir Ken Robinson, and and. <laughs> And I think in some places people think Sirkin is that I'm an Indian person of some sort. You know, for, for, for Indian subcontinent. I've had that, you know, Mr. Sirkin. Sirkin? Mr. Sirkin Robinson, yeah. So you're Muslim? Yeah, I, I just, I'll just i take it, you know, whatever you got. But it, <laughs> but it, but it, was, it was a recognition of, of the importance of the field of work as it's well as whatever contribution yes. I made to it. And also, I say, I, I took it as a family honor as well, which is great. And also, my wife and I have been together for 42 years now. We worked hand hand in glove, as I said, on everything. And the great thing about that is that with a knighthood, she also became Lady Robinson. Oh! So she shares the title, which is great. So, I mean, it's it's effectively a joint honor. It's a recognition that there's a partnership. It's like
0: when you get United Global Services and your spouse gets global service status too. Yeah well there you go it's very similar (laughs) (laughs) okay and my very last question I promise you is do you know whatever happened to Sarah
1: we moved from Stratford to Los Angeles and I just want to say a word about the transition actually my son uh, didn't want to come I've got two kids Uh, he's 21 now and my daughter's 16 he didn't want to come uh, to Los Angeles he loved it but he had a girlfriend in England Uh, this was the love of his life Sarah he'd known her for a month Mind you, they'd had their fourth anniversary. Because <laughs> it's a long time when you're 16. Anyway, he was really upset on the plane. He said, I'll never find another girl like Sarah. And we were rather pleased about that, frankly. Because she was... <laughs> she, was she was the main reason we were leaving the country. But, uh,
0: that is one of the best lines I have ever heard in a video.
1: Poor Sarah, did you scar her? Or what happened? You know, I don't know. Um, <laughs> you, you got When I gave that talk, I didn't know that it was going to go on the internet. <laughs> it, it, I was just talking. To, I was just to that roomful of people. And Sarah is scarred, and we don't know. We we didn't know her all that well. So, but I I, I live in fear that one day the phone's going to ring and say, "Hang on." Finally, she's going to see this TED Talk and make a connection. But uh, I don't think so. I think she's fine. I think they, they, weren't, they weren't a good fit. But yeah, <laughs> but that's a lot of unintended consequences, isn't it? At least now you know what it takes to get knighted. I hope you found Sir
0: Ken's thoughts valuable, insightful and challenging. It's going to take a lot to change our educational practices. So let's start. I'm Guy Kawasaki and this is the Remarkable People podcast. My thanks to Jeff C. and Peg Fitzpatrick. I'd knight them both if I could. Special thanks to Esther Watsiki for introducing me to Ken Robinson. This is Remarkable People.